Well, dear friends, shall we turn again to uh, John's Gospel and chapter 1? John's Gospel, chapter 1. And we're just going to read some verses from this lovely chapter. John chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. And then down to verse um, 14. And the word was made flesh, and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, just for the benefit of any that were not here last uh, Sunday night, uh, may I say very quickly that on that occasion we were looking at verse 1 of John's Gospel. And we notice that John draws our attention to three very important points. And we notice that he points out with regard to uh, the word, which is a title for the Lord. He points out the eternality of the word. He says, in the beginning was the word. He was there at the very beginning of creation of the universe. And then we notice, secondly, from that verse, that he draws attention to his distinct person. He says, and the word was with God. And we drew attention to a very important Greek preposition that John uses, in which it signifies literally that the word was toward God, face to face with him. And that draws the distinction between the persons of the Trinity. And there we notice lastly, he draws attention to the great truth of his essential deity, because he says, and the word was God. And I pointed out from the original Greek that uh, the predicate is put before the subject, and it literally means, and God was the word. And we centered our thoughts around those tremendous thoughts concerning the Logos, the Word, his eternality, his distinct person, and his essential deity. Well, this evening, dear friends, we're going to pick up the subject, and we're going to consider verse 14, which draws attention to two great uh, points. It has to do with the incarnation. 
It says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And then we will conclude by looking at his unique glory. Because John says, And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And tonight, dear friends, we are going to approach one of the greatest subjects in all of the Bible. Let me give to you two very short quotations from the pen of one of my favorite authors, Dr. Sidlow Baxter. And here's what he says. We must never isolate Bethlehem from Golgotha or the cradle from the cross. Apart from the incarnation, there never could have been the atonement. And apart from the atonement, there never would have been the incarnation. And apart from the infinite love of God, the neither could nor would have been ever. Tremendous words from Dr. Sidlow Baxter. And then he says again, In the super miracle of the incarnation, our very creator, preserver, judge becomes our kinsman, sin bearer, redeemer. Of all miracles and mysteries, this is the most staggering. So you see, dear friends, this evening, we are into something wonderful, something deep, something mysterious. And I can, I have to be honest with you this evening, I can only take you so far. And having done that, uh, I can't go any farther, because I am but a creature, finite, limited, and we're into something that is absolutely staggering, in which we're going to think of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Now, there was a time in which when people heard Christians believing in the virgin birth of Jesus, they were laughed at, they were sneered at, especially by the atheists and the agnostics and the humanists, as something that is absolutely unthinkable. You could never think of this as a Christian doctrine, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. And it was laughed and despised. But you know, dear friends, the time has come in which those same people who laughed at it, sneered at it, had to acknowledge something that they didn't take into consideration at the time. 
because science moves on and uh, here is where I want to just take a few minutes and uh, propose the question is there such a thing as a natural virgin birth now <coughs> we're, we're leaving aside uh, for a moment uh, with regard to the virgin birth of, of the Lord Jesus and we're going to ask the question could there be a natural virgin birth and uh, I have in front of me a tremendous quotation from the, the great Bible teacher David Pawson I don't know if you've heard of him but David Pawson is one of those teachers, one of those preachers you may not always agree with what he says but he gets you thinking and that's one of the, the characteristics of a teacher to try and get people thinking and I have in front of me a quotation from David Parson. And he says, So let us ask, could there be a natural virgin birth? The answer is yes. I was discussing this with a professor of gynecology of London University. And he said, yes, there could be. Now notice, it's a professor of gynecology at London University. And he says, there could be a natural virgin birth. What happens in such a birth is that the female egg is somehow stimulated to begin dividing without being fertilized and it just goes on dividing until it has produced another individual that professor also told me that he knew of six human cases which were possible virgin births where in a woman's body the female oven or egg has spontaneously without fertilization begun to divide now listen to this this is very interesting then the professor told me a most interesting thing he said but in every case it produced a baby girl And that's because every egg in a woman's body is female. It has to be the male who changes that female egg into a male fetus. So even though it is possible that other women have had virgin births, it can never produce a baby boy. But Mary had a boy. So you see, dear friends, even from a natural point of view, there is such a thing as a natural virgin birth. The professor of gynecology 
had six examples in mind in which were possible virgin births. But in every case, they could only produce a baby girl. And then David Pawson continues, that uh, puts it in a category by itself. It is absolutely impossible for a female to produce male offspring by herself. Therefore, Mary does stand unique. So I wonder what the atheists, the agnostics, the humanists, are they still laughing? Are they still sneering with regard to uh, a virgin birth? There it is in scientific evidence that there is such a thing as a natural virgin birth. Now, we know at Christmas time that a tremendous emphasis is put upon the birth of of the Lord Jesus, the babe in Bethlehem's manger. And we rejoice with regard to his birth. But actually, when you go to the Word of God, you find that the birth of the Lord Jesus, there was nothing supernatural about his birth it seemed to be quite natural it ran the nine months and Mary when her time came she gave birth to the baby Jesus what we should concentrate on is not on the birth of the Lord Jesus but on his conception of how it was, how it came about. Not the birth, which seemed to be quite normal, but uh, the conception. And what happened in the incarnation was this. The eternal Son of God took into union with his deity, humanity, and flesh. John says, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Now we go back to Luke's Gospel, chapter 1. And by the way, it was written by a doctor, a medical doctor in which he records for us the visit of the angel Gabriel to Mary, our Lord's mother. And what a salutation. Hail, thou art highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. And then she was told these, these words. You're going to conceive in your womb and you're going to bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great and his father shall give unto him the throne of his father David and he shall reign forever and ever. 
Now notice the reaction of Mary. At that particular time, Mary was betrothed to Joseph. Now that answers to our engagement. But it was more legalistic, more stricter than our engagement. And when the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary during her time of betrothal to Joseph, she immediately reacted in a natural way. She says, how can this be? Seeing I know not a man. Joseph and myself, we've not, we're not married yet. We're just engaged. We're just betrothed to each other. How can this be? She was a, an intelligent young woman. Probably a teenager, they say. And she realized, how's it going to happen? How am I going to conceive in my womb? I'm just engaged to Joseph. We've not come together and live as husband and wife. And here's what the angel said. The Holy Ghost shall come upon you. And the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And then the angel Gabriel referred to uh, uh, the, wife, uh, the wife Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mother, and he told her that, uh, Mary, that Elizabeth, uh, she is uh, six months pregnant, and then he said, with God, all things are possible. And to her eternal credit, Mary said, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to your words. Then she went and spent the next three months with Elizabeth and then went to her own home. And I believe it was during those three months that God in his omnipotence, in his power, performed this great miracle in the womb of Mary. Now, that raises a question, probably in your mind, in my mind, you're probably saying, Stanley, how did it happen? How did it come about? Now, there are those of God's people, and uh, God bless them. They said, well, we shouldn't try and get into these sort of things. Too mysterious, uh, too deep, too profound. Uh, we're just content to accept uh, what the Bible says, that the Holy Spirit shall come upon you, and the power of the higher shall overshadow thee. But try telling that to... Uh, an atheist, an agnostic, they would say to you, is that all you have to say? You believe in this wonderful miracle? How did it happen? How did it come about? Have you no explanation? 
How are you going to explain it? Are we just to accept these things by faith? Because, you know, we live in, a, in an age in which uh, the mind, uh, we like to think of these things, uh, work them out, uh, how they come about. Well, how did it come about? What happens? How did God perform this great miracle of the Incarnation? Now then, let me refer again to David Pawson. And David Pawson, he gives us how he thought it was performed. Now he's not saying this was the way, but it could have been the way it came to pass. Now here's what he says. God created within Mary's womb a male sperm with all the DNA of the Son of God in it. And that fertilized Mary's egg and produced Jesus. In which case Jesus would be equally divine and human. He would be son of Mary and son of God, son of man as son of God, fully both having a human mother and a divine father. Now, what do you think of that, dear friends? Was that the way that God performed this tremendous miracle in the womb of Mary? It could have been that God created within Mary's womb a male sperm with all the DNA of the Son of God in it. Now you may not accept that. Okay then, what's your explanation? How are you going to explain it, sir? Are you saying, well, it's, it's, it's beyond me. I can't really give you an explanation. But uh, it did happen. After the nine months, there's the baby. In the womb of Mary, and she gave birth to the Lord Jesus. And uh, when John says the word was made flesh... He's showing us the great mystery of how the divine Logos, the divine word, deity, took into union humanity and flesh. So that it was possible for him to go ultimately to the cross on Calvary's hill and to die for us. He had to have a body in order to do that. So there's every possibility, dear friends, that what David Pawson has suggested, that that could be the way in which God brought about the tremendous incarnation of the Lord Jesus. I suppose we can't go any farther. It is indeed a mystery, a marvel. But it actually did happen. The word became flesh. 
As Hebrews 10 says, sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. And of course with God all things are possible. What a great truth this is. A mystery, a marvel of how the Lord left the splendors of heaven and came right down and by some wonderful way entered into the womb of Mary. And God performed and brought about the body of the Lord Jesus. A body that he had for 30 plus years And here's the glorious truth, dear friends. When he rose again from the dead, it was bodily. And when he ascended back to heaven, he took back to heaven what was not previously there. He took back with him his humanity. And we have today a man in the glory. There is one God, Paul says, and one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus. And he is our great high priest. And because of his humanity, he is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. And he can intercede for us. And he knows exactly what we're going through. He couldn't do that if he had not taken into union with his deity, his humanity. The word was made flesh, dwelt among us. Glorious fact. But then you notice that John goes on to say, and we beheld his Glory. The glory as of the only begotten the Father, full of grace and truth. And I wonder, was John thinking of a particular time when the Lord was here? I wonder, was he thinking of the Mount of Transfiguration? given to us in Matthew, Mark and Luke. And on an occasion, the Lord took Peter, James and John, went up the mountain in order to pray. And the Bible says that as he was praying, there came a tremendous transfiguration, a tremendous transformation because his face began to shine like the sun and his garments became white and glistening. Now, what was happening on that Mount of Transfiguration? I'll tell you. The divine glory of his deity was breaking forth and shining forth through the veil of his humanity. John, Peter and James, think of it. They saw him being transformed and changed. And they were there 
and they were eyewitnesses. And then a cloud enveloped the scene. And then they heard the voice of the Father speaking. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. I believe that's what happened. That glory that was within him. The glory of his deity was breaking forth, flashing forth through the veil of his humanity. Dear friends, forget those pictures, those images that sometimes you see on Christmas cards. In which there is a halo above the head of the baby Jesus. Better better for you friends. But our Lord walked the shores of Galilee and trod the streets of Jerusalem. To all intents and purposes, he just seemed like an ordinary man. There was no halo above his head. Just like an ordinary man. And yet in the Mount of Transfiguration, that happened. What a sight it must have been for those disciples to see him transfigured and changed. We beheld his glory. Literally, actually, they beheld his glory. And dear Christian, listen very carefully. When we see him, and we're going to see him, make no mistake about it, we're going to see him. And we're going to see him as he is. Do you remember what John says in 1 John chapter 3? I love that portion. John's an old man. He's in his 90s. And he's not content to travel down to the post office in Ephesus and get his pension. Although he's writing to those disciples and he's excited. He says, behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. And then he says, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. We've never seen him as he was. But we're going to see him as he is. In glory, in majesty, in splendor. Oh, we're going to behold his glory then, as John and James beheld it in the Mount of Transfiguration. What a glorious hope that is, dear friends. We're going to see him. But we're going to be like him. And one of the sad things for me... Uh, that many of God's people, they don't seem to realize or understand why God has saved them. Do you know why God has saved you tonight, dear brother and sister? Is it just to save you from a lost eternity? 
Yes, that's true, but that's negative. Why has God saved you? What's the purpose of it? I'll tell you. You go to Romans chapter 8, and Paul tells us that when God is finished with us, he's going to conform us to the image of his Son. In other words, we're going to be a replica of the Lord Jesus. Now you look at me, I look at you, and we all confess to not that in so many ways we are unlike him. We fail him, but the good news is, God isn't finished with us yet. He's got to put the finishing touch upon us. And when he puts the finishing touch upon us, then we are going to be conformed unto this image of his Son. For whom he justified, them he also glorified. And sometimes we get the idea, Paul, are you not getting your tenses all mixed up? And we would say, well, whom he justified, them he shall glorify. We would put it in the future tense. But wait a minute. Paul puts it in the past tense. Check it for yourself in the Greek New Testament. He puts it in the past tense. Whom he justified, them he also glorified. Oh, you say, Stanley, wait a minute, wait a minute, sir. I, I, I don't feel glorified. I've got my faults. I've got my failure. Our friends, we're not talking about you. This is God's purpose. This is God's plan. Whom he justified, them he also glorified. In other words, God sees us already glorified in Christ. Isn't that wonderful? for the simple reason as we sang that lovely hymn tonight there's no power on earth and there's no power in hell can defeat God and his purposes what God commences he finishes not like some of us we commence things but don't finish them have jobs done when God commences something he finishes it that's what he said to the little church of Philippi. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Now, let me tell you something. If you had commenced the work in your heart, it would never be completed. Why? The devil defeats you every time. You are no much for the devil. Ah, but brother and sister, you didn't commence the work. It was God who commenced it. God commenced it. And what God commences, he will finish. I must say, hallelujah. This is our God. That's why God has saved you, dear friend. Not just to save you from a lost eternity. That's negative. Thank God for that. But when he's finished with you, you're going to be conformed to the image 
of his son. You will be a replica of the Lord Jesus. His glorious incarnation. Yes, David Pawson could be right. But uh, it did happen. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. His unique glory. And we are going to see that glory when he returns the second time. Now, the Lord willing, dear friends, next Sunday, we're going to have a look at four things that are absolutely imperative with regard to the person of the Lord Jesus. And we'll look at those four things that the Bible clearly teaches with regard to the person of the Lord Jesus. So don't miss it. Try and be here next Sunday and we'll examine these four very important things with regard to the person of the Lord Jesus. Thank you for listening so patiently. God bless you.